understand that John's goal, his purpose in writing this gospel, was to get people to believe. 98 times he uses the word believe, and belief in the gospel of John is more than just having an idea about Jesus in our heads. In John, belief is actually always a verb, and that happens 98 times with the exception of about four or five times where it's a noun. And so for John, belief is this interactive, whole heart, mind, and body endeavor. Belief is a choice we make that influences our mental and our emotional and our spiritual and our physical patterns of behavior. So a perfect illustration of this is found in John 13. In John 13, Jesus had just finished washing his disciples' feet, and they were all seated around a table sharing a meal. Now, in first century Palestine, they didn't sit in chairs around a table. Instead, they would actually recline on each other and kind of lean into each other as they were sharing the hummus and the pita and the meal that was set before them. And we're told in John 13 that the disciple that Jesus loved, he's this mysterious character who's going to come up over and over through the Gospel of John. The disciple that Jesus loved, he was leaned back against the Lord's chest. In other words, he was leaned back close to the heart of Jesus, where he could literally hear the heartbeat of Jesus as he was sharing a meal with him. And that is literally the image of belief that we want to live into this year, you guys. We actually are, we are the disciples that Jesus loves tonight. And what we want to do by belief, this whole body, whole mind, whole soul endeavor, this choice, by belief, we want to lean back into Jesus in this restful, trusting way to where we can hear his heart, literally. So the idea of leaning back on Jesus, I know for myself, um, I have a space bubble. I have a fairly large space bubble for those of you that don't know me. And so if you come into my space bubble, and kind of like, Ugh! and I'm known for not being a good hugger. I'm like a quick tap guy on the back, and then I'm out of there. So this idea of like leaning into Jesus can be a little bit kind of squirmy, a little bit for some of us. For some of us, it's just too intimate. It's like, I've never been that close to somebody. But when we ask why, usually those points of squirminess and uh, yuckiness around intimacy is usually rooted in fear or shame or guilt or insecurity. Even though you may have been raised in the church, if the idea of leaning up against another human, putting your heart, putting your ear to their chest to hear their heart, it may be that even growing up in the church, you've never actually learned to trust and believe in such a way as to be so intimate with Jesus that you can lean into him. Now, ultimately, where we are healed, where you and I are transformed, is in that close proximity to Jesus, in that rest-filled relaxed, leaning back, letting go, listening to his heartbeat. That's where you're transformed. That's where we are changed into the image of Jesus. That's where we become truly ourselves. And each of us, you need to be set at ease. Trust is always a process. It's a moment-by-moment -moment choice to trust, to lean back, to rest, to relax. Leaning into Jesus it's actually a lifelong process of learning to rest in his love. Pete Scazzaro, one of my favorite mentor pastor guys, he says that the entire gospel of John, John's purpose is actually to get us to relax in Jesus. How amazing is that? John's purpose is to get us to relax in Jesus. And so every week through the chapters of this book, what we're going to do 
we're, we're going to be given more reasons to, to lean back and be still with him, not only in our heads, but in our bodies and our souls. What John's gospel is going to do for us this year, you guys, we have these values of simplicity and stillness and spirit. John's gospel actually puts those values into action week by week. So here's what I wanted to do. Before we actually read our passage tonight, I want us to actually lean back into Jesus. Now, if you're not comfortable doing this, that's fine. But I'd ask that all of us close our eyes. Take a big deep breath down into your bellies. All we're doing there is just kind of releasing the the tension from last week, the anxiety that we have about this week coming in front of us, just breathing into our bellies and slowly releasing all that air, noticing where there's anxiety or tension or fear, shame, guilt, worry. And now just envision settling into the back of your chair and Jesus is there with you, the maker of the universe. And you're just leaning into him so that you can hear him speak softly, speak specifically to you tonight. Just relax. Know that the presence of God is near you, for you, not ashamed of you, not angry with you, utterly and completely safe and in love with you, accepting you right now. And now just with open ears and open hearts will read God's word and work our way through the passage. You can open your eyes. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, take these words, plant them deeply in our souls. Tonight, may you transform us as we lean into and for the rest of this year, every week, just beginning that that imagery in our minds of leaning into Jesus to hear from him what you have for us and what you want to do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage that we just read is technically and traditionally called the prologue, the prologue of John. John's prologue is essentially setting up everything that's going to follow in this book as we travel through it this year, and it is 
terribly, terribly dense. It is layers upon layers. And I really want to encourage you guys, week by week, return to the passage that was taught on Sunday. Have a journal open on your lap. Meditate on the words. Meditate on the sentences. Write out the deeper layers of meaning that you draw in your own personal meditations. What John does here, and we're only going to be able to highlight like 50,000 foot overview of the prologue. What John does is he introduces what he calls this person the word, the logos. The Greek word translated word in our English Bibles is the Greek word logos. He says, in the beginning was the logos, the word, and the logos was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. So verses 1 through 2, they are some of the most powerful, profound verses in all of Scripture. They are like the pinnacle of, of most of Scripture. John is referring to Jesus as the Logos, and this text, verses 1 to 2, it's actually the cornerstone for the unique doctrines of the historical Christian orthodoxy that we all subscribe to. This is where we get the Trinity from and the Incarnation. From these verses, we learn that God, God actually exists as a holy community. God is a community of relationships in love with himself and in love with his creation. And the Word, the Word is separate from God, the Logos is separate from God. This personage is separate from the, from the other parts of God. And yet somehow this word is also God, this great mystery of the Trinity. And John's prologue is also pointing to the mystery of the incarnation, that God would come and dwell among us wearing flesh, that he would add to his divinity humanity. It's hard to put human words to what John is describing here, because the mysteries and the majesty of who God is is truly beyond our comprehension. He is bigger and beyond our abilities to understand and to articulate. But what John declares in the prologue is unequivocally that Jesus is holy and uniquely God among us as a human, the God-man. He is the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John also makes this scandalous comment, this statement. He proposes that all of reality has its existence. You and I exist. The sunrises and sunsets exist. The crashing waves on the ocean shores and the mountaintops, the birds and the butterflies and all that crawls on the land and flies through the air and swims through the seas, all existence, every atom of being has its existence in the Logos, through this word, and for the word. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So from the onset of the gospel, John declares that belief, that is this whole heart, mind, strength, soul endeavor, starts with leaning into this mysterious triune God who exists as a community. And belief acknowledges that I'm able to believe I exist because of the word. I am here breathing because the word brought about my existence and my creation. Now what John is also doing in these dense little packed verses is he's not only making this massive, mysterious, and majestic declaration, He's also, from the very beginning, doing something super brilliant with the way that he describes Jesus as the Logos. What John was doing was he was actually communicating to unbelievers and believers. 
He was communicating to philosophers and to laymen all at the exact same time within his culture. And so too does John communicate with our culture. So for example, the Greek philosophers of John's day when he was writing, they had a long-standing tradition based on this word logos. They had a long school uh, establishment of teachings on this word logos. And they did not associate logos with Jesus at all. So let me give you a couple examples. They believed, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers believed that behind the workings of the universe was this impersonal force, this kind of rational movement of everything. There was a grain to the universe. It was not thoughtful. It wasn't intellectual. It didn't have its own being. But it was the grain that was established by this kind of unspoken, unseen, rational principle. Then from that belief in what they called the Logos, they called that rational principle the Logos, from that belief, all these different schools of thought arose about how do you align yourself with the grain of the universe? How do you align yourself with this impersonal Logos, this this movement behind the universe? So for example, the Stoics. The Stoics taught that to align yourself with this, you needed to just accept everything as it is. Through asceticism, strict self-control, through detachment from worldly desire, that's how we would finally gain the good life. In contrast to that, if the Stoics were over here on the far right, then the Epicureans, they were over here on the far left. And they believed to align yourself with the grain of the universe, then you just needed to satisfy every desire that you had. Humans should embrace whatever makes them most happy. So appetites for food and sex and popularity, those appetites were to be well-fed, and in so doing, you would find yourself in alignment with the logos, this impersonal force, the grain of the universe, and you would flourish. What John does, though, is he comes and he speaks, and he says, no, the word, the logos, is not this impersonal grain of the universe, It's actually a person. What John is saying to the Epicureans and to the Stoics and to the philosophers of his day, to the unbelievers, he's saying, you, to align yourself, to flourish, you need to give your allegiance to Jesus alone, align with him. It is only Jesus who will bring flourishing. Now, John was also, if he speaking to the, man, the sound system tonight is just killing us. John was also communicating to the believing Jewish communities of his day. Just stick with me through this introduction. It's really important. What John does is he opens the prologue by saying, in the beginning, in the beginning. Where are those words found, class? (laughs) Well done. Good. (laughs) In the beginning triggers memories of Genesis chapter 1. And so what John is doing for the Jewish people, for the believers of his day, is he's saying this Jesus thing that I'm talking about, this is about new creation. Something brand new is starting with Jesus. So just as there was a beginning to all the universe and everything that is, Jesus is this beginning of a brand new creation. He's the inauguration of something new. And so Jesus was being presented by John not only as their God, but he was being presented as the fulfillment of all their longings. We don't have time to dig into all these verses, but if you skip down to verses 14 to 18, I'll just read it for you. It'll be up on the screens. John says to the Jewish people, the word, this logos, this person, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified, and we'll talk about John the Baptist next week, skipping down. Out of his fullness, we all receive grace, for the law was given through Moses. What John's doing is he's taking his Jewish readers on a journey from Genesis to Exodus through the Old Testament, and he's pointing to Jesus. That verse 14, the word became flesh, that's actually drawn from the actual language of Exodus, where God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. And so verse 14 literally says that Jesus tabernacled among us. What John is saying here about Jesus is he's saying he's the person that all humanity must align with. And then for the Jewish people, he's saying he's the new temple. He's the new hot spot of God's presence on earth. So yes, Moses gave the laws to the Jewish people. And those laws were God's grace, God's working in humanity to draw them back to himself, but now Jesus is the ultimate revelation, and through him comes grace and truth in abundance. So let's make an application point. These ancient peoples, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the ancient Jews, they were just like you and me. Because tonight, all of us are trying to figure out what the good life is. It's what we're pursuing. There's not a single one of us in here right now that isn't making our ultimate pursuit happiness, comfort, peace, satisfaction, a sense of meaning, a sense of identity. Every human on this planet believes that there's something out there, whether they're unbelievers or full believers, whether they're philosophers or laymen, we all want to be aligned with the grain of the universe. We all want to experience flourishing. And every human is living according to different schools of thought. Some humans are, are self-controlled and denying their desires, like the Stoics. This is the way that I'll finally flourish. This is the way that I'll find meaning. Other humans are Epicurean. We live in one of the most Epicurean societies to have ever existed on the planet. Hedonism, which is another big word that basically means eat it, drink it, go for it. Whatever makes you happy, get after it, because it's all about aligning with this satisfaction of desire. Some, rarely in our society anymore, choose religion and its statutes and doctrines as a means of finding hope and meaning. And what John is doing here, you guys, is he's introducing Jesus, the Word, as the one and only and true centerpiece of everything that exists and our only hope for life. And it was truly revolutionary. But what John does in his introduction to the Word is he caps it by describing Jesus' life as life and light of the world. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For John, life is more than just a functioning set of brainwaves and a heartbeat. Every word that John uses is just piled with layers of different symbology and different meaning. And so when John says that Jesus, the Logos, was life, John is saying to his readers and he's saying to you and I that Jesus is fullness of life. So the Epicurean route, John says, will not lead to fullness of life. The Stoic route is not the true way to be fully human. Adopting religion and a set of statutes and rules by which we live is not going to bring flourishing. What John is saying is Jesus is the fullness of what it means to be human and he is the fullness of life. The Logos is the source of reality, and he is the source of what we humans can and should be. 
So for the religious and the non-religious, for the aesthetic and the hedonist, for the philosopher and the layman, what John is doing is he's forcing a decision. He's forcing a decision for all of his readers. And really, this prologue kind of feels like an atomic bomb going off when you read it. It's not very gentle in the way that John does this. What John does is he just kind of blows away all the philosophies, all the religions, all the varying ways that we're pursuing human flourishing, and he lands it in Jesus. And then we are forced, humanity has to make a decision. Either we believe and we choose to believe that Jesus defines reality and is the light guiding through the dark, or he's not. Now, for the next 21 chapters and really for the rest of this year, we're going to be exploring. John lays out in this amazing kind of literary structure, John lays out Jesus's seven I am statements, which are almost direct quotes of the I am statements of God in the book in the Old Testament. John's going to lay out seven signs, water to wine, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus, these signs that are all marks of who Jesus was as the source and light of life. There's these multitudes of stories, and they all witness to John's truth claims about Jesus. But from the very beginning, true belief, and tonight, if you and I are actually going to lean back and learn to rest in Jesus, then we have to choose to receive Jesus as everything. Our external circumstances cannot define fullness of life. What's happening around us, what's happening inside of us, we have to actually choose to say, Jesus, I'm here because of you, and you are the source, and so I'm going to lean into you until I experience that fullness of peace. And if it seems dark, then Jesus is the only light that we can look to. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look to religion. We can't look to the philosophies of the world. We can't look to Instagram. We can't look to our careers. We can't look to our relationships. What John is saying, this atomic bomb in the prologue is going off, and he's saying to you tonight The only light that cannot be overcome by the darkness is Jesus of Nazareth, the Logos, the Word. And that is where he actually begins to encourage us in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What Jesus does is he begins to light up the dark confusion of our souls, and then he begins to light up the darkness of our society. And there's this fascinating thing that John says. He says that the darkness has not overcome it. That's such a curious way to talk about darkness. Why would he say the darkness has not overcome it? Now, some of your translations may say uh, the darkness did not comprehend the light. There's a technical thing going on here that we're not going to get into in the Greek language, but it could mean they didn't comprehend it. That is, they saw the light, they kind of scratched their heads like, I don't get what that is. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't comprehend the light. Or more, I believe, John is talking about dark as if it's opposed to the light as if the dark is actually organized against the light, and he's doing so intentionally. Darkness is not just the absence of light for John. Again, one of these layered meanings of words. Darkness is a symbol, and it represents the satanic influence in the world, and darkness for John represents sinful humanity's denial of God, organized, intentional decision to deny Jesus. So, Because John started in the beginning, we begin to reflect on Genesis 1 through 3 while we're reading this. And we read that there was darkness, Genesis 1, and then chaos. And God bursts into that darkness and he overcomes it with his word, let there be light. 
And the darkness just fled from the light of God and couldn't overcome it. God ordered the disorder and put his humans in the garden to live in relationship with him. And so there, from that place, those humans were to go and reflect his light as co-rulers in partnership with their creator. But that darkness, whatever it was, was always lurking and always seeking to usurp the light. So what Adam and Eve did when they decided to take matters into their own hands was they actually ushered the darkness back into the world. There's this serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He deceives them. They believed the lie that they could actually be God themselves without God. We allow the organized darkness into our lives when we forget what theologians call the creature-creator distinction. At the, at the root of sin is the belief that we can be our own gods, that we can be self-defining, that we can choose our own course apart from a God who created us, to whom we owe our allegiance. In fact, darkness is living in misalignment with the grain of the universe, the logos. It's, it's living at odds. It's living crosswise with the way that God has structured and ordered the universe. And so what John says is he says, darkness cannot overcome this light. Even though sin and Satan will always organize itself against God, it cannot overcome the light of life that is in Jesus. That's the decision that we're being presented with tonight. John continues, tragically, a lot of humans will choose not to follow the light, verses 9 through 12. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so though Jesus created the world, the world didn't recognize him, and even when he came to his own people, the Jews, they intentionally didn't receive him. And this is where we're going to be landing the plane now as we come to communion. For those that surrender and choose to believe, for those that say, I'm not going to organize myself against this light. I'm not going to live crosswise with the grain of the universe. We actually, by grace, somehow miraculously are brought back into this original state of relationship with God as his children. Verses 12 through 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will but born of God. That is the gift that's being offered to all of us. It's this choice to trust Jesus and to be delivered from the dark chaos and actually returned to that childlike state. For Jesus, for the Logos to become our source of flourishing tonight, we have to allow God to do a supernatural work in us of restoring our brokenness. And so we have to choose to receive Jesus for who he is. He's simultaneously the one who draws us to the light, and he's also the one who supernaturally brings about our new birth. And there has been multiple traditions of Christianity that have tried to figure out, is it human's responsibility to choose Jesus, or is it God who draws us? Which is it? And John says it's both. John says, if the, that's why I'm saying the prologue. This, honestly, I feel like these human words I'm speaking up here are just so dumb. I was telling Evan, it was like, we, I had a conversation with him, and I was like, this, this stuff is so thick and so deep. Maybe it would be better if just 
For the next six weeks, we just meditate in John 1 through 18, and we don't use human words to try to, to try to, every, every church gathering, I just show up, we sing some songs, we read John 1 through 18 very slowly together, take communion and go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is why. The mystery of God supernaturally rebirthing us, it does involve our choice. John leaves every human on this planet with a choice. You tonight, me, right now, in this second, we have a choice. Am I here because of Jesus? Is he the light of my life? Or is not? And every time, every millisecond that we say, Jesus is the light of my life. He's the centerpiece of my being. Light comes out of you. Light. And every millisecond that we find ourselves saying, I think I'm going to go my own way. We take the fruit and we say, I think I could be my own God. I think I'll define who I am. I think I'll define my own course. I think I will be God without God at the core of that. Darkness comes. We institute and reorganize. That's oxymoronic. We bring chaos back into the world. And then there's this mystery that the tender father, as we'll learn in John 6, is always drawing you, and so you're safe. The good shepherd will always be speaking to you, so you need not fear. The bread of life will always be fed to you, so it will always be full. The waters of life, John 7, will flow out of your innermost being, and so you're safe. And even though often we will choose to walk away and self-define and turn to the darkness and pretend like we don't comprehend the light because that's what sin causes us to do, Jesus will always be there pursuing, carrying this rebirthing process. And this new birth, you guys, it changes every single thing about us. Children of God, we children of God, we are marked by a breaking with the general pattern of the world around us. So this is what I want to wrap up with. I want to wrap up with something very, very practical. This week, some practical ways that you and I together as a community can move towards the light and learn to lean into Jesus. Number one, meditate in this gospel and the scriptures daily. This is just practical, real deal Christianity. This week, take time, maybe set your alarm 10 minutes early, get up and read through John 1 through 18 and just say, Holy Spirit, this super dense, super thick, what do I do with this? And read it in such a way as to read it slowly. And if a word or a phrase leaps off the page, Stop there. Stop there and say, Spirit, what are you speaking to me? If, if something scares you, you find yourself saying, wait. Uh, for example, you're reading along, you say, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you, you hear that word children, and it just reverberates, and you find yourself either saying, am I a child? Seek the Father in that and say, Father, assure me of my childlike state before you. Allow meditation to make you one with God as you're meditating and chewing on his word. Number two, and this is a big one for us. At Neighbors Church, we're never going to ask you to do more. We're always going to ask you to do less. Always. We are not asking you guys to do more with the practices. If you leave here burdened with, oh my gosh, now I've got to do this and this and this to get close to Jesus, we're off. We're off. This week, practice simplicity. And what I mean by that 
is not only, not only reducing the clutter of our calendars, but practice simplicity. Try to take time and distill down where am I sourcing my flourishing? What school of thought right now am I giving myself to that's teaching me this is the way of fullness? This is the way of life. Is it Instagram influencers? Is it a career path? Is it a relationship? Is it something happening outward? All these schools of thought are teaching us, here's how you're going to flourish. Simplicity says, I detach from that. I literally make the decision to turn from that, and I remember that halagas, this, this being, I am here because of him. And in simplicity, I say, that's enough to know that you made me, and whatever you give to me or do not give to me, whatever you take from me, whatever I receive, whatever is going on in me internally, whatever is going on in me externally, simplicity says, my relationship with you is enough. You are my portion. You are my peace. You are my bread. You are my water. You are my satisfaction today. That's a discipline that requires letting go of everything else. Not doing more. Not chasing harder. Simplicity is a life that begins to declutter. And what I mean by that is it begins to literally reduce the clutter of our calendars. To focus on that child-creator relationship. It emphasizes these things that are reducing anything that's blocking us from keeping quiet in Jesus. Number three, this is a huge one for us. Practice silence, solitude, stillness, and Sabbath keeping to learn to hear Jesus and rest in him. I hope through the Gospel of John that almost weekly, to the point where you guys are like super annoyed with it, you will be challenged to accumulate at least 60 minutes of silence and complete solitude a week. That's 10 minutes or so a day. And working up to 20 minutes a day. I've committed to our team for an extended amount of silence and solitude every Sunday before I teach so that I can come in and, um, you know, live what we're actually trying to do. And it's phenomenal. 10 minutes of centering prayer, wherein you find yourself in the morning quieting your body, do a quick body scan, starting with your toes, Breathe in, work all the way up through your body. Just note you don't need to fix the tensions. You don't need to fix the anxieties. You don't need to fix the weird ache in your back. Just know it's there and you're present now with God. And then learn to just be silent. Maybe gently introduce the word, I'm listening. I'm listening. Maybe the word, love. Just gently, you don't even have to phrase it with your actual tongue. Just say the word, love. And then rest and let the Spirit move you into his presence. You don't force it. In solitude, learn to be in intimate union with God. Just him and you. And a time of resting, a time of leaning back. And I can't stress this enough. In Sabbath keeping, one 24-hour period a day where you begin to look for, you look back on the accomplishments like God did in Genesis 1, and you rest, you take reprieve, you lean back for an entire day to be still, to hear the heartbeat of your father, to smell the flowers, to watch the birds fly by, and to say, Lagos, I exist because you made me, and I'm going to just reciprocate in this relationship with you back and forth in stillness and quietness and rest and trust 
in leaning into the heart of my Father. Sabbath keeping to hear Jesus and rest him. And then finally, all of this is a moot point if we don't do this and talk about this in community, where the light reflects in the midst of each other. Be in a community group where you can share, whoa, this morning in my time of silence and solitude, I came to such a place of deep rest that I felt like lightning was going off in my heart, but it felt wonderful. I finally felt rested. I felt at peace, and it carried in, and you can share that, and that light shines, and then the light gets brighter and brighter. So next week, we're going to wrap up now. Next week, we're going to look at John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was a light that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, and what we learn through the Gospel of John and all the New Testament is that you and I, we actually are the light. We need to be praying earnestly, Father, how can we draw humans out of the darkness into the light here with us? It's our responsibility. It's an emphasis that God has placed upon us as a brand new church plant. But that happens from a place of stillness and leaning back in Jesus. That doesn't mean we gear up and get after it. It means we rest more deeply and we get into a flow where the Spirit is just taking us where he wants to take us, how he wants to take us, when he wants to take us there for the sake of his glory. We're going to come to the communion table And I would encourage each of us to just lay everything down. You know, there may be lingering questions. There may be a ton of confusion about circumstances in your life tonight. There may be unanswered prayers where you have found yourself praying and praying and praying and the the Father seems to be saying no. Maybe you're in a season tonight where everything's going well. It seems like doors are just opening up for you. And that's actually really beautiful, but that too can be a distraction from Logos, from Jesus being your centerpiece because we're so easily tempted to build our joy and our flourishing and our hope and what's going on in us externally. And so tonight, as we come to the communion table, let's meditate deeply in the fact that the God who cast a trillion suns into the universe became a baby, dwelt among us, is the new temple. He is the hot spot of God's presence. And I really would ask that as we come to communion tonight that we would practice simplicity, that we would let our prayers even go and just say, Holy Spirit, I need you to be in relationship with me in a way that is new and fresh, new creation through Jesus. And when we practice simplicity and stillness, in times of communion. What we're doing is we're just, we're giving ourselves to God with the intention of letting him have it all, every bit of it, the questions, the hurt, the fear, the shame, the the inability to overcome our longings, the inability to change our circumstances, the inability to change our emotions. We're just saying, here it all is. And then we let the Logos, the one who ordered the universe, order our hearts. And he does it supernaturally this mysterious, majestic process of new birth. He makes, it, he makes it new. And we do that for the rest of our lives in community, week by week, studying the Gospel of John, taking communion together. And slowly but surely, we become this bright light until one day, there's no more need of sun because the kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. And there's this, God is our light. God is our wholeness. God is our fullness. Fathers, we worship you tonight. We just lay everything down before you and ask that we would be able to release um, 
any of the tensions and fears and doubts and worries and you love us it's so hard sometimes to understand if we root our flourishing and joy in what's going on outside of us it's so hard Lord when we look at our broken world and we see the wars we see the plagues we see the falling apart at the seams but you're inviting us tonight to a meal and we are the disciples that you love Help us, gracious God, to lean back and rest and be truly one with you, one with our maker, one with our creator, unified with each other in a place of simplicity, in a place of stillness. And I'm praying, Jesus, I'm asking you to send your body into the world, to send us, Neighbors Church, into our neighborhoods and workplaces and classrooms to really be light, to really love people as you loved us. And so meet with us now in Jesus' name.